Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about. It's there, There's a simplicity to a good Euro cheeseburger that's lost on so many of these quote-unquote chefs. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for the week of October 27th, 2019. My name's Joe Hicks. And I'm Evan Kelly. Evan, what are we doing here? Well, Joe, we're trying to introduce good faith discussion to a number of topics and encourage those of you listening to engage with these topics in a meaningful way. Yeah, we realize that we're only human and we try to do things the best that we can and uh, give credence to all the best thoughts, no matter where they come from. So, Evan, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, Joe, every week we come on here and we have a conversation. So this week I want to talk about conversation. Meta. It's very meta, I know, but hopefully it'll be pretty interesting. Is it too early to get meta? (laughs) Uh, It wasn't too early for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It's not too early for us. Specifically this week, I want to talk about... 10 Tips for Better Conversations, which was given to me in a TED Talk by Celeste Headley, who is an NPR reporter. And within the speech, she gives 10 tips that she has picked up on having conversations and interviewing people for a living. So I'm going to go ahead and explain each of the 10 tips, and then Joe and I are going to weigh in, because when I heard this, some of them just seemed like common sense. Some of them were real revelations to me, and a couple of them I flat out disagreed with. So, Joe, I'm interested to hear your opinions. I am pro-conversation. Excellent. Moving into it. Tip number one for better conversation is don't multitask, which involves being in the moment and not letting your mind wander and not surfing Facebook videos. I think that's a very valuable tip. So... As my job, I manage truck drivers and I have to interact with them on a regular basis. And I have quite a number of them and I'm busy doing my work and doing administrative tasks and all this other stuff. But these guys, they're in their trucks alone all day and I'm like the only person that they get to talk to. And I definitely notice that sometimes I try to get stuff done while I'm talking to them, but that just is not quality conversation and it leaves them just le- wanting more. And I always hate it when I'm talking with someone and they're multitasking or doing something else. It's like, Hey, I'm important. Focus on me. Yeah. And really, how can you have a conversation without being invested in actively listening to and responding what someone else is saying? For me, this one just kind of felt like common sense, good advice, but I guess for me, it's sort of self-evident. Yeah, I remember in high school getting really mad at people when they'd be looking at their phones and trying to have conversations, which still happens, but it's just different now. Maybe we all just grew up a little bit. Maybe, maybe. I can certainly hope so. So tip number two, don't pontificate. You can't just go on a one-sided discussion, you have to allow for response and argument. Yeah, I think that's an important tip. I mean, we all need to rant sometimes. You know, that that's one thing we all need to do. We need to express ourselves to other people. But if you're trying to make it seem like we're having a conversation and then never give me room to talk, that's that's not going to be great, man. 
Exactly. Everyone at some point is going to need to blow off steam and express themselves in an uninterrupted fashion. But if that's the only way that you can converse, it's not really conversation. So this one also seemed kind of like a a common sense one to me. Yeah. Tip three, use open-ended questions. It was said in this speech that if you ask a complicated question, you get a simple answer. But if you ask a simple question, you can get a complicated answer. So instead of asking, were you scared, which elicits a yes or no response, ask, how did that make you feel? And then they can get into a more robust description of their emotions, which will lead to a more interesting response and better conversation. Um, you know, I, I mostly agree with that, but some people make it easier than others. There are some people you can ask the questions that could be answered in yes or no format, but they give a more elaborate response anyway. So it 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 comes down to the user because there are some people, no matter what, they're just going to kind of say yes or no or whatever. So, I mean, kind of common sense, but um, it, it's wholly dependent on who's who's part of the interaction. Sure. And this also kind of wound up in the common sense category for me as well. Maybe it's just something that I've internalized. But while while I agree that there are certain people who will respond to questions the same way, no matter what, I think there's a lot of people in the middle who just want to know that you're interested. And I think asking open-ended questions is maybe a warmer invitation to open up. Yeah, that's why we want to know what you guys think. The listener, text podcast to 61319 and let us know. Or email the real email address because we do really enjoy legitimate dialogue, not just with each other, but with all of you. And we actually have had a wonderful response in this past week, which we will get to at the end of the program. So anyway, tip four. Tip four, go with the flow. And this one was one that really opened my eyes and I've been trying to implement since I heard this. You have to be able to allow ideas to leave your mind unstated. And maybe other people knew this more easily than I did, but I feel like often when I have a conversation especially maybe with someone who I don't feel as intelligent as or that I'm not as comfortable talking to, I feel like I want to make really good points. And so when a good point comes to me, I hold on to it and I make sure that I say that point. But the problem is that when you're doing that, you're not listening to the new things that are being said And often you end up just pontificating. If your only goal is to say the thought that popped into your head five minutes ago, that makes for really choppy conversation. So this is something that I struggle with so much, but I'm working harder on not clinging to the first idea that pops into my head, trusting that when there's a natural interruption in the conversation, I will have something meaningful to say in response. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a, a good tip. But man, when you're in a conversation and you think of that golden nugget, 
And then all of a sudden the conversation train goes over to the next town and you're like, no. <laughs> and then you try to awkwardly be like, oh yeah. And about that thing we were talking about two minutes ago. Yeah. Here's my point about it. Yeah, exactly. It's really tempting to want to express the thing that you're just so sure will really advance the conversation. But according to the the speaker, Celeste Headley, that's that's not actually the best way to carry on a conversation. And it that that really resonated with me. And I think it was kind of a wake up call to me to change my cognitive processes while I I'm engaged in a conversation. And oftentimes when you go back and try to add the point to an earlier part of the conversation, you just end up creating a dead end. And then everybody's like, well, where do we go from here? Exactly. Because it's not responsive to the natural flow that the conversation had taken. Just got to let it flow, man. Let it flow. Let your love flow. Uh, tip five. If you don't know something admit it. This is something that I feel like was a problem for me when I was younger. I I think that I've gained a modicum of humility, although even saying that shows a lack of humility, doesn't it? I mean, we did call it adequately informed. <laughs> we yeah, we didn't say we are the we are on the ivory tower. That's true. We, and hell, maybe even saying adequately is a little is, is a bridge too far. Maybe a short bridge, but yeah, quick, quick jumping bridge. Um, yeah. But th- it makes a lot of sense. A lot of people and I think that this is really easy to see in other people where they enter into a subject area that they're really not familiar with, but either they're afraid of how they'll be perceived or or they just want to continue the conversation going. So they sort of fill in their knowledge gaps with either nonsense or outright lies. And you can't possibly have a good conversation if one or more of the participants is just bullshitting their way through it. It's more noble and absolutely acceptable to just admit that you don't know. And then you can either bridge that knowledge gap or you can move on. Yeah, you're you're not going to be you can't be part of every conversation. I'm not going to be in conversations about the minute details of surgical procedures. That's that's something that I have no knowledge on and have no take on. And if two people in front of me that I want were talking with started talking about that, I would just kind of Distant, I mean, not distance myself, but just let them talk. I don't have something to add there. You don't exactly. always have to have something to add. Exactly. And without something to add, I think it becomes an opportunity to educate yourself and to listen to those who do have something to add. I mean, talking without no information is, is a real way to quickly discredit yourself. Yeah. All right. Tip six. Tip number six. Don't equate your experiences with theirs. And this is one that I really struggled with. And I would have to say that I disagree with the speaker in the TED talk says that it is an absolute faux pas to try and relate with someone to say, you know, your struggle is a lot like the time that I had this struggle 
because she perceives that as a move which reorients the conversation back to you. But I would say that if I'm in a place where I'm seeking sympathy, it actually helps me to understand that the person that I'm talking to has been through a similar situation, that maybe they do understand what I'm going through. So maybe it lends them credibility with any advice or consolation that they give me. To know that someone has been through what you've been through really, at least for me, helps me feel less alone and less isolated. So I have to disagree with our speaker on this point. I, I think this is a, uh, a one tip that requires a bit of nuance. Like, so if someone's talking about to you about how they hate their boss and just kind of under, you know, he's like a dick or something and you don't like it. And you're like, oh, man, my boss is a dick, too. Then you can have something to talk about. But if someone's like, um, my mom is dying of a very rare cancer that is essentially torturing her as she dies and we are unable to console her, it's not a great thing to come up with the anecdote that um, one time I broke my leg and it was really hard. The, well, sure. There, you don't want to... There, there's, there's uh there's kind of levels to it. Yeah, you don't want to equivocate things that aren't equal, but the way that she phrased it was that if you're trying to listen to someone express a problem, you should not under any circumstances attempt to find a common ground, and that's what I think bothered me about that tip. Well, and there there's also the discussion that sometimes happens about, you know, oh, man, I came to this friend with a problem and all they wanted to do was try and solve my issue when it, you know, I just wanted to rant. So once again, sure. if you're going to if you just want to rant. Just just make it clear. Yeah. And that is an important point that it's important to understand what you're trying to get out of a conversation. Are you looking for advice? Are you looking for sympathy? Or do you just want someone to listen to you because it's all pent up inside? And I think that's that's incredibly difficult to communicate sometimes. It's hard to communicate the communication, man. But who communicates with the communicators? Oh, tip seven. Tip seven. Try not to repeat yourself. And this is something that I have taken to heart deeply and still struggle with. When I am in a conversation with someone and they're actively listening and doing a good job and being very receptive and just letting me talk, I feel as though I have a tendency to repeat important points. But the point that the speaker makes, and I think it's a good point, is that it's condescending. It makes it seem like you don't trust your listener to understand what you said the first time, so you have to repeat yourself. And I think for me, it's it's born out of a lack of confidence that I'm communicating my points clearly and effectively, but I'm working really hard on letting my claims stand for themselves, expanding upon the claims if necessary, but not engaging in outright repetition. Yeah, I mean, that seems like something good. 
if they need something repeated, they'll ask again. Exactly. It was just one of my favorites because I feel like it's something that I really struggle with. But if you're mindful, you can start to move towards making a change. So tip eight, stay out of the weeds. You don't need to include names all the time, specific dates. I feel like that's something that certain people do. They want to get the the either the year or sometimes the exact date of an event correct. But Headley argues that these specific details can detract from the more important elements, which are the story and the connection that you're making with someone, especially if you're struggling to find those minute details. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is when I'm talking with someone, especially if it's like a shared story and I hear them telling it and they're adding in so many details that just makes it cumbersome. It's like, no, I didn't need to know that the car was yellow. I didn't need to know that it was 30 degrees out. What does that change anything? (laughs) So, yeah, definitely keep your story focused on what it is. You know, some details are important. Is it important to the story or not? Or if it's left out, does it change the impact of the story at all? And if it doesn't change the impact at all, leave it out. Yeah, I agree. Tip nine Listen, to me, this just kind of seems like a summation of the previous points, especially number one, don't multitask. But the idea is simple. If you actively listen and retain the information that your conversation partner is giving you, you're going to have better conversations. Gotta listen. Gotta gotta hear what they're saying. Gotta pick up what they're putting down. And tip number 10 is be brief. So on that note, Joe. Yes, Evan. What do you want to talk about today? Good transition. Today, I want to talk about lunch debt, a topic that comes up every once in a while. It's it's a pretty simple concept. So kids at school eat lunch. We've all been, I hope we've all been to school. And I hope we've all eaten lunch at school, so we get the idea. But most schools require, most, most, most schools require you to pay for that lunch. Now, some kids are unable to pay for lunch because their parents don't make enough money or there are issues and the school still sells them lunch. But it racks up a debt This issue can arise from several things. There are programs for free and reduced lunch, but not every single family has the know-with-all how to apply for that. Not, and then sometimes there are clerical errors. You know, you can get approved for, you know, several months and not the whole year and not realize it. So this leads to children getting lunch and racking up a debt for that one, those lunches that they've eaten. And then they, this often comes to a head when a school decides that kids with lunch debt are no longer able to participate in certain activities at school, or even up to, they try to make it so that they cannot graduate if they don't pay off their lunch debt. Now, this, it just seems 
ludicrous to me that a child would be stifled in their schooling because their family hasn't been able to pay for their lunch. Like everybody has to go to school and you have to have lunch. It's part of life. We all have lunch. And I think we all believe that kids should have lunch. One thing that has led to the rise of this is schools having policies that all kids be served a hot meal regardless of their ability to pay for it. This was a policy to help kids be able to um, not be what's called lunch shamed, where kids who weren't able to afford a regular hot meal were given like a cold cheese sandwich or just something small and not a hot meal. And so they they give kids hot meal, but then they start racking up debt. And I just, I find it a, a bit enraging because in some ways my family was either able to pay for my lunches or, you know, at times also uh, had free or reduced lunch. But a kid getting fed at school shouldn't come down to whether their parents are able to pay for it or not. Evan, what do you think? Well, this is something that really tears me up. And there's a story that I want to share about this being in the news recently. It was a young boy in elementary school in Uniontown, Ohio, named uh, Jefferson. And he had just moved in with his grandma, who was raising several other grandchildren and was still getting her finances settled with the school. Jefferson accrued a mere $9 lunch debt. On his birthday, the school was serving some sort of cheesy breadstick type pizza dish, which was his favorite. When he took it to the counter to pay, the attendant working in the lunchroom ripped the tray from his hands and replaced it with one of those cold cheese sandwiches. Now, people who know me well know that part of one of the biggest parts of my personal philosophy is the sanctity of birthdays. I believe that life is so hard that it is appropriate and a wonderful thing to be able to celebrate making it through another year of life. I would wish that my worst enemy in the entire world had a good day on their birthday. And so for this child who is already going through upheaval to have his birthday ruined by factors outside of his control just absolutely guts me. And I know that it's an extreme example, but it just feels like we are we're failing at some fundamental part of humanity when we're telling children that they can't even eat worm food because someone else who is responsible for them, sometimes through no fault of that party, is unable to pay. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it seems to me like we can do better. We can either just forgive lunch debt or 
we can guarantee free lunch for all students. That's that's the the path I I definitely think of. But I just want to hold on that moral point. You know, I could understand a kid being held accountable because he was given lunch money, but decided to spend it elsewhere. Like that's the kid's choice. But it's not the kid's choice that his parents weren't able to pay for lunch or, you know, even in the worst case scenario that people like to think of that this kid was born to parents who choose not to work or choose not to provide for their kids. Like, why should the kid have lunch taken away from him? Like, in some ways, people, some people look at it as, you know, punishing the adult because it's like, oh, you're not able to feed your kid. How, what a shame. But you're really leaving a kid hungry or, or slightly worse, made to felt other when they're already poor and probably having issues. They, they don't need lunch to be a battleground where they know it as well. This is not a luxury item. This is not even optional school supplies. This is something that we absolutely need. And I, I can see the argument that no one is being starved out, but I do not think that it is a good faith argument to argue that a cold cheese sandwich is as nourishing as a complete warm meal. And it affects student performance. When you're hungry, you cannot focus. This is a a biological truism. Your body stops focusing on other tasks. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When When your need for food is not being met, your body devotes its attention and energy to solving that basic need. And I think that it's absolutely correct what you're saying, Joe, that it may be unfortunate that some parents pay for school lunches and other parents don't and their kids are treated the same. I get that that feels unfair. Why should some parents have to pay for the lunch and other parents not have to pay for the lunch? I get that. But when the stakes are children meeting their basic nutritional needs, we have to value the compassion for hungry children over the fairness of parents who are in a financial position to pay for lunch. I, you know, maybe maybe you can at least play devil's advocate. Uh, maybe you can't, but I don't see that when we talk about the impact of that trade-off. It's it's a no-brainer to me. Yeah, and I. And I still, I, you know, in this country, we, we traditionally think of providing lunch for the kids at school as kind of the parent's responsibility, like way before the modern era where it's just accept or it's just, uh, it's expected that the school provides lunches at school. Kids had to bring their own lunch from home or be provided, you know, funds to go and get lunch. So there is a tradition in this country that it is believed that it is the parent's responsibility to provide for lunch. 
but we tend to run in time and time again. What about these kids whose parents aren't able to provide an adequate lunch solution for them? Aren't able to provide a good uh, lunch from home or provide enough money to buy lunch at school? What do we do about them? Are they just a lower caste, a lower, a lower class that everybody, uh, that it's okay to not give them lunch because they can't afford it? I mean, it's lunch. I mean, hell, nobody would think it's okay for their child to go without lunch. And why can't we extend that humanity to other people's children who aren't able to get lunch? I think that, um, and this may be tipping the hand on the big topic, but I think that there is a distaste for collective action for the collective good. As in, you know, I, I, I have the resources to get my child lunch and that's it. So I don't want to guarantee free lunch with my taxpayer dollars. But it completely ignores, A, the value of compassion, which I think is extraordinarily important in creating a, a world where you want to live. And B, it ignores utilitarian principles. If we can band together to make sure that no child goes hungry in a school context or in a broader context, we'll find that people are more productive and more able to contribute to broader society. It's a lot easier to learn math and build fundamental skills that will help you later in life if you're not hungry. And if we all, we all live in the world, we all interact with each other and Maybe this is the the selfish way to make this argument, but by helping other people, it will come back to benefit us. I mean, life is is tough enough to begin with, and you know, I have had, I guess, what it within this conversation, I have had luxury of for pretty much most of my life not having to worry about getting lunch. That's something I've pretty much never had to think about or think, oh man, am I going to be able to have lunch today? That's not an issue. And when that's not an issue, I'm able to focus on other problems, focus on doing well in school, doing well in, in activities, doing side projects. Um, but if you're stuck thinking about where you're going to get food from, it's hard to go on and do much else. And I think it's important to realize that it's a choice. We can choose to take a hard line and say, well, it's all about parents' personal responsibility. And I understand, as I've, as I've said before, not, not to risk repeating myself, but I understand where that's coming from. But there's nothing that there, – there's no law of nature or of human government that says we have to prefer that way of thinking. If we choose to value fed students over this notion of hardline fairness, we can choose to do that and reorient our policies to reflect that choice. And it's a choice I would make mm -hmm. any day of the week. 
So we've been ragging on the policy, but uh, let's think for a second. Is there any way we could think of how the current policy of most schools have making kids pay for their lunch is good? Well, what, what conditions would make it good? I think it would be good if it created competition for services, but the, yeah, the really cafeteria doesn't. system is a monopoly. You know, you in most places, you can't really go off campus for lunch, <laughs> at least in a... Now I'm thinking. Now I'm thinking of some talking point. It's like we're going to bring competition to the high school cafeteria space. Like what? <laughs> That's a weird argument. Three cafeterias all competing uh, for student dollars. Yeah. Um, about the only benefit that really seems to exist from the current program of that most schools have of making kids pay for their lunch is that in the long, well, who knows in what run, but it creates a dollars for dollars transaction and it saves some community members on their taxes. That's in effect what it does. Yes. They pay a few fewer tax dollars and kids, some Poor kids don't get lunch. That's in the end what happens. And, you know, kudos to the parents who are able to make it happen. Kudos to them for working hard or doing whatever they need to do to be able to pay for those lunches of their kids. But if everybody was able to do that, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Exactly. So why don't we take a few extra dollars and just make it so that every kid can have lunch every day and hopefully a better lunch because most school lunches aren't that great, but that's a <laughs> whole other conversation. There's actually something that can be done. So there's a program it's under the somewhere in the USDA. It's called the community eligibility provision and it's a program that's set up for if there, I don't know the exact number, but if there is a decent number of kids in a school district that qualify for free or reduced lunch, they can actually just bypass the whole system of individuals applying for free and reduced lunch. And they pay out a lump sum to the school district. Yeah, I think it's the sum of the kids who... Some of the kids who uh, qualify for free and reduced lunch, and that's paid out times 1.6. And then that that can be used to guarantee free lunch for everybody using federal dollars. So my big point is that lunch is something we all have. We treat it as important. It's a very important time in a kid's schooling. It's one of the few free times that they have and it's their chance at socialization and kids don't need to be outcast poor kids are already poor then they don't need to be reminded about that at lunch absolutely i agree i think that lunch debt is not an inevitability it is the result of what we value and i would hope that we can choose to value the 
safety and inclusion of children, if nothing else. And even discuss the egregious case of when a school district in Pennsylvania threatened to put kids in foster care because they wouldn't pay their lunch debt. Yeah, I recall that. And yeah, that happened earlier this year. It's sickening that your response is not let's help the students, but let's allege that their parents are neglecting them because we as a school system are failing to provide adequately priced lunches. And a local businessman in that district even offered to pay for the lunch debt and the school initially rejected it. Like this is commitment to being punitive. I know that's a rogue case, but it seems to speak to an overall greater viewpoint that school lunch is a tit for tat enterprise. I really like that you bring up the punitive aspect to it because it does feel punitive. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it's serving any real purpose other than to punish children for an adult in their life's inability to pay. Exactly. Like what's the kid going to do? What's a first grader going to do who can't afford lunch? There's nothing they can do. Like there's nothing. Or in Jackson's the, the case where read. it's quite possible that his, his grandma could have afforded lunch, but they were in family turmoil and there were just clerical mistakes made that led to the lack of payment. Yeah. So, yeah, let's let's give kids lunch. It, here, it's here. the least we can do. It is. Evan, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we are going to talk about utopia, or more specifically, the idea of utopian thinking. Much of this that we're going to talk about is drawn from a book that I read earlier in the year and that I really enjoyed by a man named Rutger Bregman. The book is called Utopia for Realists. And in it, Bregman pushes us to think about how we would want the world to look if we could build it up from scratch and ignore all of the existing social structures and current problems. So a quick rundown of the terms we're going to be using. Utopia is an ideal state of the world, and it's inherently not pragmatic. There are times where it's really important to consider how you actually go about achieving things and getting things done step by step. A politician or an elected official has to be able to articulate how they will accomplish their policy goals. And that's really important. But some people and some contexts require a utopian line of thought. And I'm going to read directly from my notes on Bregman's book here. So the thrust of Bregman's argument is that, for the most part, our utopias won't ever become fulfilled. But in times of crisis, ideas can model the change that we want to see. He makes the point that during the financial crisis of 2008, we had a real opportunity to reshape fundamental systems that govern life in this country. But because since the 1980s, we had been conditioned to accept the status quo of 
runaway, unregulated financial sector activity that the great thinkers of the time weren't able to offer a better way forward after the financial crash. So what we get is no real reform. I mean, even the most problematic security product, the CDO, is being sold under the name Bespoke Tranche Opportunity. Literally nothing has changed since the financial crash. And Bregman argues that this is because we've lost our penchant for utopian thinking. Thinking big helps us shape the realm of what can be possible in the future. Bregman makes the important point that though it seems that history is filled with progress upon progress upon progress, that nothing in history was a foregone, was a foregone conclusion before it was history. Every piece of progress that was made that benefits people's lives was the result of decisions by people acting in their time. And therefore, we have to have a blueprint moving forward for what we'd like to see in our society. Thinking big opens the Overton window. And Joe, you were actually the first person to introduce to me the concept of the Overton window. So why don't you explain what that is? Oh, the Overton window. First popularized in the modern era by one Glenn Beck. He 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 would talk about it, how Obama was changing the Overton window. But anyway, that's that's a side conversation. The Overton window is, you know, within the window is what is considered normal ideas to talk about within political conversations. So if the Overton window were to shift in one direction, that would mean that ideas that were formerly not part of normal conversations become part of normal conversations. So one way the Overton window has changed recently is before the uh, 2016 uh, presidential election, no major Democrats, or at least very few, were talking about universal health care as a serious policy that they were pursuing, or at least at least the uh, Medicare for all single payer version of it. But Bernie Sanders ran on that issue and it became very popular. So he opened up the Overton window that more people could talk about it. It could be uh, something that people could actually talk about and become be considered within the normal range of ideas. So now in the you know run up for the 2020 primary, almost all Democrats endorse positions that were way to the left on healthcare than they would had been just four years ago. When we don't talk about ideas, there's no way that we can ever enact them. And so pushing the Overton window is the first step towards getting an idea accepted in the discourse so it can be reflected in the policy. Yeah, you you have to be able to talk about something before you're able to do it. You know, if it's not part of normal conversation to talk about something, then there is a very small possibility that it's going to even get done because who's going to know about it? So with all of this in mind, today, Joe and I would like to share with you small visions of component parts of our own utopias. And my utopia would mean a societal restructuring 
around the value of compassion. And as you've gathered already from the the earlier parts of, of this recording, this is very important to me. And I've been spending the the week building up to this recording, trying to think of why. And I think there's a few reasons why this is so important to me. One is religious. I feel that I'm called to show love and compassion to others and to treat them with dignity. But I get that. Not everyone has to adhere to my religious philosophy. I don't expect any everyone or anyone to. But I think there's a good case, a utilitarian case to be made for orienting our society around compassion. If everyone is compassionate, if you show compassion to others, you will also receive compassion in return. And anyone who has ever gone through a a tough time or a low point and been shown kindness knows how incalculably valuable compassion can be. So I think that even if you don't have any belief in or interest in religious ideology, Compassion still makes sense in a secular world as well. But beyond all of the intellectualization of it, maybe it's just something I feel deep inside of me where I, 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 I hear a story of, of injustice or I, I witness someone being treated without compassion and it just bothers me to no end. So my, my utopia necess- necessarily is predicated on compassion. And I think the way that this translates into our tangible world is through an expansion of the social safety net. And these ideas are going to be drawing a lot from the thinker Goran Therborn and a book I read of his earlier this year, The Killing Fields of Inequality. In it, he talks a lot about inequality, but he tries to expand our conceptualization of inequality beyond economic or wealth inequality. Instead, Thereborn talks about the inequality of capability to function as a human being. Essentially, the structures that are set up in our world modify our ability to act with freedom to strive to fulfill our fullest potential. A big way that this happens is monetarily. If you grow up without money, not only are there tangible harms associated with growing up without money, but you end up gaining cumulative disadvantage, which restricts the choices that you have in your life and restricts your ability to become all that you could be or all that you want to be. And Thereborn argues, and I agree, that we need to strive for a greater equality of opportunity. But something else that I think Thereborn makes really clear that I really relate to is that equality of opportunity isn't static throughout our life. And I know, especially in this episode, we've been talking a lot about how, it af- how different inequalities affect children in terms of lunch debt and similar issues. And I think that's very important. But 
in an ideal world for me, we don't just extend that compassion and those second chances to children. Mm -hmm. Even if someone has messed up and it is their own fault that they can't pay their hypothetical lunch debt, I still would want a society in which no one goes hungry. And it's just predicated on this idea that when we have compassion for those around us, we are compelled to give them second chances. Now, obviously, in any system, no matter how wide we cast the social safety net, there are going to be people who are lazy and who abuse the system. There are going to be people who commit horrible crimes and are antisocial. But I truly believe that that is a small fraction of the overall population. And instead of orienting our policy choices towards the worst examples of humanity, we can have our policy uplift the best of humanity. And there's two specific ways that I think a wider social safety net could be implemented in a utopian world. There's a lot of ways, but for time reasons and to not overextend myself, I'm just going to talk about two. The first is a universal basic income. This is something that's come up on the podcast in passing before, and it's really just going to be in passing again here because to truly talk about a universal basic income requires a great deal of time. Watch for the universal basic income episode someday. On Sunday? That's quick, Joe. Someday. Ah. So I I think that universal basic income tries to assert on a basic level that someone's ability to live is not dependent on their ability to work. I'm not trying to argue that people shouldn't work. As I mentioned, some people will still be lazy and laziness is laziness. But when we look at times where universal basic income has actually been implemented, we find some really uplifting things about humanity. When we talk about universal basic income as essentially a a monthly stipend that's not tied to any sort of productivity or qualifications, but that every citizen receives equally, here's what we find out about work. In countries where universal basic income has been implemented, labor force participation dropped on average by only 1%. Even when given enough money to meet their basic needs, 99%, well that's that's inaccurate to say, but only 1% only 1 percentage of the population dropped out of the workforce. <laughs> 99 percentage points. Yes, yes. There's a difference between percent and percentage points that even I mess up a lot. But um, (laughs) we find that the people who are dropping out of the workforce are mainly fall into two categories. One is students. Students take a little longer to finish their education if they don't have to work immediately. And new mothers take longer to go back to work. And to me, this seems like a wonderful trade-off. We end up getting 1% dip in labor force production, but we get a better educated populace and we allow mothers to do the valuable work of being with their children in 
extremely formative stages. Yes. So universal basic income is something that I understand there's a lot of roadblocks to in the status quo. It's not something that we could jump to from our current system. Maybe not as it wouldn't be as smooth as Andrew Yang thinks it would, although I have a lot of respect for Yang. But I still think that it fits into my utopian ideal. Mm-hmm. And the the second component is closely related to universal basic income. And this is universal housing, a housing guarantee. In some places, they're called housing first programs. And if you're familiar with my work, you, you may remember that this was something that I have been stumping for since the 2015 speech and debate season when I ran an informative on it. The idea is that there's nothing that someone has to do to earn housing. If you cannot afford housing on your own, you apply and receive a housing assignment with no strings attached. It's not predicated on sobriety. It's not predicated on job application quotas. We just say, if you live in this country, you deserve to have a roof over your head. And I think that this has proven to have a couple of great benefits because Utah did this nationwide and they were able to cut their chronic homelessness by 90% by doing this. Mm -hmm. Number one is that it improves the lives of people in a tangible way. People who have shelter have better outcomes. As we talked about, it's it's one of the basic needs. So when you're not worried about where you're going to sleep or if you're going to survive a cold night, you can be more productive in other areas. The other thing that we find when we implement universal housing or a housing first policy is that it saves taxpayers money. Turns out it's a lot cheaper to pay for someone to have an apartment than it is to pay for the social services that they'll use associated with their homelessness, including court costs or hospitalizations that result from exposure, essentially. So uh, Housing First, I think, is much closer to a potential reality than universal basic income, but both extend a compassion to our fellow citizens and invite them to be a part of a shared community in a way that benefits not just them, but all of us. Yes. Everybody, people benefit from other people doing well. Like you person, you know, in, in a society when people are doing well, it helps you do well. We're conditioned to think of it as a zero sum game that if we are spending money to help other people, that's money coming out of my pocket. But that's such a short term myopic view. Yes, it, it's life isn't in a, a strict exchange of dollars and cents. Sometimes things, certain ways those dollars and cents get spent can have a bigger impact than just what they are. Um, exactly. Giving a chronically homeless person a place to rest their head and wash up and be warm allows them, creates the security 
where they can adequately be able to apply for jobs, gives them an address to put on their resume and allows them to keep tidy and keep their possessions in good condition. Without that, it's hard. They, they have to pull the ultimate feat. They have to not, they have to be above their conditions, which none of us really are. It's it giving you know, a home, a chronically homeless person housing drastically increases the odds that they will make something of their lives and move on to not even need it anymore. Exactly. And it's important to differentiate. I think you're you're still making an economic argument and there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's right. a very good economic argument to be made for it. But in my utopia, the value isn't necessarily economic efficiency. Yes. In my utopia, I don't care if he ever gets a job. He probably will. But it that's not as important to me as showing the compassion to make sure that he or she has a housing guarantee somewhere to be that's safe and warm that to me is more valuable yes Ever, and and in our own lives we've most of us you know i'm going to guess most people listening to this have had housing all their lives it's never been a question of where they're going to live for those who have to question it, it it's just not a good quality of life and most of the time it's not even for well even if it is for reasons they could have controlled there's reasons why they didn't control it is how housing is something so basic that really everybody should have it you know and it doesn't have to be lavish it doesn't have to be real nice it just has to be enough yes that's the thing is is when we talk about universal basic standards income housing i don't need everyone to live in a mansion and if someone does really well for themselves and wants to live in the mansion i don't have any problem with that but on a base level we can do more to prevent problems before they happen and reduce suffering in people's lives in a tangible way. Like with uh, universal basic income, kind of the most common metric that people use is kind of about $1,000 a month. So $12,000 a year. That is not a lot of money as far as an income goes. But just something small like that for the people who make less than that already would make a huge difference. Absolutely. And, and you know, maybe we'll, I, I don't know too many people who would just be content on just earning $12,000 a year. That's, that's not a whole lot of money. We're not creating this circumstance where, you know, people are just going to choose to be wholly dependent on the government because it's not that much. Um, but something of that size would be able to help the people who are most in need. Sure. And as you say, it's not meant to take the place of a 
fulfilling full-time job that will lend you disposable income and grow the economy. But for people who otherwise can't earn a living for whatever reason, or for people who are in transition, or for people who are at different stages in their lives, as as I mentioned, new mothers or, or students, there's a real benefit to having that cushion and to have it not be tied to anything. Mm-hmm. That there's nothing you can do to lose that. It cuts down on fraud because it's impossible to defraud the system. And it cuts down on administrative overhead because there's no, we don't need any bean counters saying who's eligible and who's not. Yeah. Since we live in a society that being able to live is dependent on money, what, yeah, what do we do with the people who aren't able to make money? Making money is a skill. Yeah. You use different skills to make money, but uh, dealing with money is a skill. And not everybody has that skill. You know, there are some people who can't play basketball, but we don't structure our society around shaming people who can't play basketball. Same thing with money. But for whatever reason, our society is oriented around who makes money. And some people just aren't able to. And we we moralize it so heavily to the point where we deem anyone who ends up in a bad situation as as morally wrong. But there's so much in life that's out of our control. I'm not advocating for an abdication of personal responsibility, merely a recognition of the role that larger forces play in our lives. I am a recent college graduate, still looking for full-time work. I've worked since I was, you know, 17, 18, but I've never had a full-time job, and yet I have never been homeless. I was lucky that parents that, that my parents were able to provide stable housing for me. I was fortunate to get into college and be able to enrich myself through education for years. And I'm currently fortunate to have a fiance who can support us while I find a full-time job. So I have not done anything in my life to earn housing. And yet I've always had it. And the issue is that because I've always had it, society doesn't try to chastise me Whereas someone with the same actions as I did, who happened to be born into a less fortunate context, would be endlessly criticized and told that they deserve their station in life. And they don't. They don't. I, not, not, they, don't, they don't deserve any station that is so abject that their basic ability to live is compromised. Yes. I, again, we're we're just stressing that we're not, you know, uh, sometimes people make this argument. It's like, well, if we believe everybody should have health care, why don't we just everybody, the government gives everybody a TV. It's like, no, TV is definitely a luxury good, at least at this part of society in this modern times. So we're not trying to give everybody a luxury good. We're not you know, there was an Onion article where uh, it said Obama signs bill to give everybody a, a, a ooh, signs a bill to give everybody in the country a parrot. 
This is not that. <laughs> um, this is not luxury goods. We're just trying to make sure everybody has the bare minimum. And while I think that there is a lot to be said for reducing inequality, hell, I'll go even farther. I It's a big personal goal of mine to reduce many forms of inequality in this world. I think that's an absolute necessity to ensure justice and compassion be reflected in this world. But I'm not advocating for complete equality. I understand that some people are going to be born with greater talents, with a greater work ethic, and they will be able to make more of themselves than someone else. And I'm not trying to penalize those people. I don't believe that it's just to Harrison Bergeron them down to the level of everyone else. But I'm just talking about extending a basic level of compassion to everyone. Taking it's care, that simple. Taking care of everyone in the same way that you would take care of a family member. Yes. Extending who we consider part of our tribe. Yeah, that's so important, at least in my worldview. And I would agree. Well, I guess you it's yeah. yeah, I guess it's time to talk about Joe Jotopia. Uh, Jotopia, I love it. It's uh, it's it's the sequel to Zootopia, except I'm every character. Um, <laughs> but. When I was thinking about this and when I've thought about this in the past, I, I kind of come up with three tenets um, to Jotopia that I feel very important to me and inform the way I think about policy and what I believe we should be moving towards in society. Um, the first one is, and these are in no particular order, the first one is an actual commitment to equal opportunity. This is something that gets thrown around, a term that gets thrown around a lot. Oftentimes when talking about the differences and outcomes between different groups and thinking that, oh, we provide equal opportunity. So if they're given equal opportunity, then you know the outcomes are wholly dependent on them. But if we were to examine equal opportunity, we would know that our society does not give people equal opportunity to succeed. And, you know, even if we look at it in a case of kind of the uh, birth to year 21, not everybody has equal opportunity. Um, as described before in the lunch debt situation, some kids aren't able to afford lunch and that affects their schooling. Both Evan and I went to a high school that's in a more rural part of the country. I mean, it's it wasn't small by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm sure we both went to college with people from suburbs of big cities and their schooling situation was way different than ours with many more resources and many more opportunities to learn than we were allowed. Yes. <laughs> Those kids coming in with like 60 credit hours already and me coming in with my four. Oh, uh, well, I guess I'll have to admit I, I came in to Bowling Green with 57 credits. Ooh. So, I mean, yeah, we'll cut that out. Cut, cut this. Yep. <laughs> Evan is the bourgeoisie. 
<laughs> um, and then even from there, I, I recognize that in specialty uh, arenas that, you know, if you wanted to pursue certain activities, if it just didn't exist in your area, you were kind of out of luck. You know, both Evan and I were interested in somewhat niche activities. I was interested in marching band and playing snare drum. And Evan was interested in speech, which both existed in Galesburg. But there there wasn't the existence of superstructures that allowed us to better exist in those worlds or uh, strive in those worlds. We just kind of had the basic systems that allowed us to do it, but we weren't allowed to thrive. So, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not saying that every school has to have every niche opportunity, but if we were to say that we wanted equal opportunity for everybody, we're kind of falling short. Yeah. And just to, to speak to my own personal experience, uh, Galesburg is in a part of the state of Illinois where speech and debate is not competitive enough on the state level because of where it's located. However, my parents were fortunate enough to have the resources to send me to a speech camp at Northern Illinois University. So I got additional training, again, that I didn't really do anything to earn, but because of a boost from something that I had no control over, I was able to get ahead. But that is not afforded to every person, even within our own community. Yeah. And there, there is definitely a divide in education outcomes and not as many, you know, different groups are able to uh, be, you know, reach education levels differently. And I, I have a sincere belief that if we are going to, if we really want to be committed to um, equal opportunity, we have to take a much broader view of what it means to give equal opportunity, not in the way that I see it um, formed in most times, which is a minimum opportunity. So my second tenant is one that I, I believe very closely and it informs a lot of my ideas is that we should do what we can as a society to help prevent people from dying prematurely. I, you know, I have a sincere belief that it is an injustice if anybody dies before they, before old age or medical complications that deal with old age. If somebody dies in a car accident, most of the time those are preventable. If somebody dies in a shooting, there are things that there are, uh, there are steps that as a society we could take to help prevent those. If people beca- die because of a medical issue, we should be taking a look at that and seeing what we can do to help prevent that in the future. I believe that we should be striving to make the world safer and better able to deal with illness so that most everybody can reach old age and die in a way that is before they've reached the, f- the full tenure of their life. 
It's the most egregious act of neglect to allow premature death. And I'm, I'm really happy that you framed it in such a way, because I think that that's very compelling to think about it in terms of what we can do to protect each other on the most existential level. Yes. If, if there's one thing, all we have is life. And I feel like we should be doing everything that we can to make sure everybody lives life. And, you know, like uh, whenever a school or some sort of big shooting happens and, you know, we start talking about gun policy and then somebody goes, well, what about cars? We're not trying to outlaw them. It's like, well, what about cars? (laughs) (laughs) What can we do to help cut down on deaths associated with that? Um, I do acknowledge that there are some deaths out there where individuals take on make individual choices to take on way more risk than normal. But I believe in the normal, just kind of a normal mundane day-to-day life, the risk of death should be brought down as far as possible. I don't accept that just kind of some deaths are part of life. I believe that we should do, should be doing near everything we can to help prevent premature death. And my third tenant, this is kind of on the back of a lot of what Evan said, but I don't believe anybody should be without medical care, housing, basic provisions like food or whatever, or education because of lack of money. These are things that are so basic to be able to just live and be able to, and with education, being able to thrive. And these are the core of what I don't, I believe are people need and what they shouldn't be without, no matter the circumstances, because they're so closely aligned with just what people need. And I have a deep belief that whatever is needed should be provided for people, no matter what. Yeah, this pairs really well with my desire to expand the social safety net. It's not about giving, rewarding laziness. It's not about making a system which penalizes success. It's just about realizing that we have a vast amount of wealth and to take just a small amount of that, a relatively small amount of that to guarantee that our fellow humans are able to survive. Like there's nothing any of like, there's very little that any of my family members or close friends could do where I could think that they did because of whatever they did. They did not, need have a guarantee to health care, housing, basic provisions or education. Like, you know, I think of in the health, you know, in the healthcare debate, what if we were at a party and someone um someone has like a heart attack or something and they're lying on the floor and somebody's like, call an ambulance, but somebody's like, no, I don't think they have enough money to pay for it. 
let's just let them sit here and die. Nobody would do that. We would call the ambulance, even regardless mm-hmm. of their ability to pay for it. We believe intrinsically that the people should have the right to health care or people have to should seek it out when they need it. Why don't we just go the extra step and actually make it something? Um, yeah. Why, why does it take the most extreme cases for us to act on this implicitly shared value? Like I most, you don't choose the medical ailments that you're going to have. The, these are the, the things that I believe are so basic. And again, on this list is not a basic right to a TV. It's not a basic right to the latest telephone. It's not mm-hmm. a basic right to, um, I don't know, to eat at a, a an affluent restaurant. It's, it's just the bare minimum of living as a human being. And... I believe, at least in our society here in the United States, we definitely have the means to provide the bare minimum. How much more human potential could we unlock if we removed this base need to ensure that these basic things are met? If we said everyone can live... Now go do what you're called to do. What what could we accomplish? Who knows? It's it's the possibilities are endless. Maybe we'll finally design a good roundabout. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually pretty pearl roundabout, but uh, oh yeah, roundabouts are chill. Yep. Maybe we'll finally design it. Man, it's all coming down to design with me. <laughs> Maybe we'll put people on the moon again. No. We'll keep thinking. It's utopia. We can can keep thinking. It it just, I believe that we should treat every fellow man as a upstanding person who's living their lives and recognize that life is hard. So why don't we make it a little less hard? Yeah. Yeah. We, we can make it a little less hard. It doesn't have to be super hard. We don't, we, we can change the rules. Nothing is given Nothing except what we need. Yeah. Nothing about our rules deigned by nature. We make our rules. That's, that's Joe-topia for you. Joe-topia. Sounds like a nice place to be. Um, and I guess kind of you know, a few provisions that um, help achieve Jotopia. Kind of like Evan said, a universal basic income can be part of it. I'm more of an idea of a kind of minimum income, but, you know, that's a, we're splitting hairs and that's, we're not, we're not on the universal basic income podcast right now. So we'll get into that discussion at a later time. Yeah. Uh, homeless programs that put people into housing because shock if you give the homeless a home they are no longer homeless uh kind of a modern united states issue i believe in zoning reform so that people can build more houses so housing can be affordable shock and universal medical care and i you know i don't even really care how it's achieved 
um, whether through market solutions or a single payer or nationalized, as long as everybody is able to access quality health care, no matter their ability to pay for it, I don't care how it's done, just as long as it's done. So that's that's what I was. That's that's Jotopia. Again, there's my magic wand and my policies and a chicken in every pot. And a chicken in seven pots. Call back. <laughs> Again, self-referential too early. You be the judge. You, the viewer, figure out what we're referencing and dial nine. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's time to move on to the end segment. Yeah, normally we like to talk about something a little bit lighter, uh, culture, sports, or something of the like, but it's been a little bit of a slow week, and we actually have something exciting to share with you all. For the first time, Adequately Informed has received a viewer question through our email address. Joe, do you want to repeat through, that? Through the, electro- through the electronic mail at... <laughs> podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. We genuinely love hearing feedback on this. We've, we've appreciated everyone who's reached out individually and we encourage discourse. That is what we're here for. And so we would like to share the thoughts of our first email respondent on our show today. This is coming from Michael M who says, I like how both of you summed up the Democratic debates because, unfortunately, I haven't had time to watch them. Although I do watch outlets such as SNL, Daily Show, and Last Week Tonight. The question I have is, do you think that media outlets such as The Daily Show are at a high responsibility? And would their commentary be crucial going into 2020? Joe? Mm, I don't know if my... So I I used to watch a lot of Daily Show way back when John Stewart used to do it. I do watch Last Week Tonight. Um, and I don't watch SNL, but it just seems like the players in the left comedy world, or the you know taking you know having takes on the current political landscape, aren't as prescient as they used to be they don't speak to a higher truth it's just kind of like hey everybody get this trump's bad and then hold for applause um and uh i mean maybe i'm just not there's something out there that i'm not seeing but it it feels like the role comedy has in politics these days doesn't seem as cutting as it was maybe you know like 6 or 8 years ago so i watch last week tonight every week uh not live i don't have it too but <laughs> yeah when it comes up on youtube i'm all over that and I definitely agree with your underlying idea that 
the the com the political comedy we're seeing with the except I believe with the exception of last week tonight because I think that is still exceptional programming but besides that it does feel like a lot of it is the same Trump critique over and over again which may be valid mm-hmm. but it it doesn't feel like we're we're reaching for new ground every week well in last week tonight it's different because it's not riffing on what just happened. It's the main segment. It, it's taking a step away from whatever's happening, a deeper look at an issue that is not currently in the headlines or not, or, or is, but it's, it's not the minute by minute. Oh, here's what happened today. Here's what Giuliani did. Ah, oh, isn't Giuliani a doofus, which he is, but <laughs> you know, I want something a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. But to, to Michael's point, I think that that is how a lot of people get their updates on the political process. The debates mm-hmm. are, you know, they're interesting to, to you and me, but for general consumption, they're pretty dry. There are a lot of people, most of them that you've never heard of, talking over each other. And it's not, you know, it's not the most engaging viewing. But with comedy, even if there's issues about how the comedy is being conveyed, and I think you've raised very legitimate critiques about the, the quality of the content, it still is a more accessible way for many people to interface with our political reality. And so even if, uh, to, to the question, even if people don't necessarily need to rely on these sources to be informed, I think that there is a responsibility of shows like The Daily Show to at least be accurate, to not deliberately misrepresent the political truths that we're experiencing because even though they're the purpose is comedic and they're intended as comedy, it's how a lot of people prefer to stay informed. I think it's funny that there's kind of since, um, since uh, Stewart and Colbert passed on the torch, there's almost like a political comedy establishment which yeah. feels very antithetical to what they were originally doing. <laughs> yeah. Isn't, isn't that, isn't that funny? You know, so many um, powerful organizations seem to start off by rising up against the establishment. And then just over time they become the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. They're successful on that anti-establishment message, but then what happens to things that are successful? They become entrenched. <laughs> That's like uh like I remember John Boehner saying after he retired, like I was the tea party before the tea party. <laughs> like when he came to Congress, he was doing, he was rising up against the establishment, worked through the system, became the establishment and a new anti-establishment group came up and upended him. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it is the, the, um, the political comedy world is important in respect that if people are still watching them, it's important. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If it, if it helps sway people's political opinions, then it's important. It, it's kind of one of those things. It's, it's, it's important because it is. (laughs) 
Yeah, um, it's, you know, it's a very populist argument, but if the people are paying attention, if people like our good friend Michael are getting uh, a lot of enjoyment and a lot of viewership out of these political comedy programs, we have to take them seriously and we have to understand the associated responsibilities. So that's that's uh, my commentary on the commentary. Yeah, and thank you so much for the our viewers for writing in and responding. We absolutely love that stuff. And we'd like to thank you for listening in general. Um, keep listening. Please download our podcast. Please tell your friends. Wherever, tell your friends. Write a review if you're on a platform that allows reviews. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Twitter now? Yeah, we do have a Twitter. I didn't peep that, but there is adequately informed Twitter. No name games there. It's just adequately informed. And give us an email at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. We hope you enjoyed this discussion and we'll talk to you again next week. We hope you've been adequately informed. (laughs) Adequately informed. Yeah, that didn't really work because um, that's like the the worst audio quality is when we're both talking at the same time. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, it just sounds like we hope you've been adequately. Music in this episode was brought to you by Anthony Hish.